As I came in this morning, uh, one of the gentlemen here in the church asked me a question. He said, why didn't God kill Aaron? Lord, have mercy on us. There's your answer. The only answer I can come up with. Mercy, grace, as we're going to discover as we look at our passage this morning. Lessons learned from a staycation. This morning, failed leadership. You know, the mere mention of those words is sufficient to make church-going Americans flinch. We are not the first generation of evangelical Christians to blush over credible reports of immorality and greed inside the church. But until fairly recently, we have most often been in the enviable position of those who could point to other groups with a somewhat holier-than-thou attitude. What a shame, we would say. Another rogue priest or a liberal pastor involved in a sex scandal. Well, what can you expect? But the last few decades, and most especially the past few years, have proven time and time again that we evangelicals are not immune from failed leadership in our churches, our seminaries, even our homes. A friend of mine recently prepared and preached a series of messages entitled, Evangelicalism in Crisis. Can you guess what the primary focus of his messages was? That's right. Failed leadership. Failed leadership. Our text for this morning has a great deal to say about failed leadership. As you'll recall from our earlier studies in Exodus chapter 32, all Israel was encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. At God's instruction, Moses had ascended Mount Sinai to meet with him. In Moses' absence, he had left Aaron and Hur in charge of God's people. We read of that in Exodus 24, 14. Aaron was not new to the role of leadership. In Exodus 4, 16, we find that Aaron was raised up by God as Moses' mouthpiece. Moses had argued, I, I can't speak well. God had said, I'll give you Aaron. He will speak on your behalf. In Exodus chapter 7, Aaron is found before Pharaoh where he is performing miracles in the name of God, casting down his staff whereupon it becomes a serpent and swallows up the serpents of Pharaoh's, or Pharaoh's wise man. In Exodus 29:44, God promises to consecrate Aaron as high priest of his people. Now, Aaron was not new to the role of leadership, but always before he had led with Moses at his side. On this day, the day described in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6, Aaron and Hur are on their own. And so we come to the events of Exodus 32. We read in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered together around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. And what did Aaron do? How does he demonstrate his leadership? Verse 2, he gathered the people's gold earrings. Verse 4, he took their gold and fashioned it into an idol cast in the shape of a bowl. And by this action and what follows, Aaron becomes the poster child of failed leadership. Indeed, his failure as a leader displays itself in no less than six distinct ways. I know I tried to get it down to three. I just couldn't. There's six here, and I've got to share them with you this morning, so I'll move quickly. 
But before we look any further at Aaron's failed leadership, I want to say a word to those of you here this morning who are thinking, well, if ever there was a sermon that didn't apply to me, this is it. I'll listen out of respect for God's Word, Marty, but, but nothing you have to say on this theme relates to me. To begin with, God has never ordained me to provide spiritual leadership for anyone, much less two or three million people. And the second thing you should know about me, Marty, is, is that I'm simply not leadership material, and I am fine with that. I've never aspired to be a leader. It's too much grief, too much responsibility. You couldn't pay me enough to be a leader. Now, if that's what you're thinking, I want you to know I hear you. Leadership has never been an easy job, and it is, it's never been harder, I think, than it is in our generation. We consistently set up leaders only to ignore them or abuse them, and if that doesn't work, we impeach them. But that being said, not a one of us, listen to me, not a one of us can escape God's call to lead in some capacity. You say, but Marty, I told you, God has never called me or he's never appointed me for leadership. Oh, but he has. If you are a husband, he has appointed you to lead in your marriage. If you are a mother or a father, he has appointed you to lead in your family. If you're a Sunday school teacher or an Awana leader, he has appointed you to lead by demonstration, by modeling for those children, those precious ones that you care for. If you lead a small group, lead that small group. If you are a choir member or a musician, you help every Sunday to lead us in worship. If you're mentoring a young believer or training an intern at work or, or instructing your grandchildren in how to manage their money, you're assuming the role of leader, and rightly so, because God has appointed you to that role. So you don't have a nameplate that reads CEO or a T-shirt that reads the big cheese doesn't matter a bit. If God has placed you in a position of leadership in your home, in your church, on the job, wherever, if he's given you an audience of a million or an audience of one, you have been appointed by him to lead in that arena of your life. And the principles of leadership that are found here in Exodus chapter 32 have important and practical application for your life. Now, that being said, I encourage you to follow along in our text as we consider the lessons we can learn from Aaron about failed leadership and how to avoid these same mistakes. It needs to be said at the outset that Aaron's leadership failures had nothing to do with greed or immorality. Isn't that refreshing? They were, as we shall see, much less sensational than many of the modern-day leadership failures, but they were no less serious. And they were no less detrimental to God's plan for His people. The first leadership failure we may observe here in Exodus 32 is the failure to make oneself accountable. One of the interesting and I think often overlooked aspects of Exodus 32 is that faced with a decision of ultimate importance, the making and worshiping of a new God, that's fairly significant I'd say, Aaron chose to act unilaterally. That's especially significant because according to Exodus 24, 13, when Moses set out to go up the mountain and meet with God, he left matters in the hands of the tribal elders and told them that should they have a dispute, they should refer the matter to both Aaron and her. 
And yet, although the matter before Aaron was one of ultimate importance to Israel, there is no reference to either the elders or her. It would appear that Aaron's course of action was just that, Aaron's course of action. Now, admittedly, in the absence of Moses, his primary source of counsel and accountability was missing. But God had not left him without assistance nor accountability. Most of us here this morning are aware that the New Testament, New Testament theology, there's even more precise lines of accountability laid out for the people of God. A plurality of elders is called for in the church, among whom the pastor is but one voice. In our own day and time, failure to observe that particular principle of leadership has caused more than a little bit of strife in Christ's church. I'm thinking of two prominent local pastors. On the face of it, the apparent reasons for their leadership failure were very, very different. But as the story of each has unraveled, there became a common thread. You see, both men had over time set themselves above their ministry peers until they were at last accountable to no one but themselves. Both men had received counsel from their peers repeatedly over the course of many years, and both men had refused to take that counsel or receive that admonition. Some years ago, I was asked to come to the aid of a church that was going through a serious crisis. They had recently dismissed their founding pastor, who'd been with them for some 20-plus years, and in his absence, they were struggling to find their way forward. My first impression of my predecessor was really quite favorable. It was clear that he was a visionary. It was clear that he was a strong leader. And it was clear that he was a godly man. I remember the first day I sat in his chair and looked across at the wall on the other side of the office. And there hung his motto, still emblazoned on the wall, for an audience of one. And I thought to myself, good for him. Good for him, a man who understands who he's ultimately accountable to. But then why did the church feel the need to dismiss him? The answer was that as the years passed, he became more and more a law unto himself. Finally, he was accountable to no one but himself. A few unwise, questionable decisions and his ministry of 20 years collapsed around him. He simply wasn't listening, taking counsel, made himself accountable to no one but God, just you and me, God. My own observation is that no matter how godly, no matter how wise a leader may be, whether in politics or industry, in the home or the church or the local PTA, the failure to make oneself accountable is nearly always a sure sign of coming disaster. The second leadership failure observable in Exodus 32 is Aaron's failure to provide those under his care with what they needed rather than what they wanted. Now, what the people of God wanted on this occasion was a visible representation of God, whether of Jehovah God, and that may indeed be what some of them sought, or of the gods of Egypt, which is clearly what some of the others sought. But either way, their request was for what God had only recently forbidden, 
We read in Exodus 4 the words of God, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am a jealous God. Far from being good for them, what they wanted was a damnable thing. It was an offense to God. And as they would discover, it was a prelude to death in the camp. What they needed then was not what they demanded. What they needed was a good, stiff rebuke from their leadership. Aaron's seeming dilemma was not, I think, unlike our own. Children are often the classic example of those under our care who frequently request what they want rather than what they need. And if what they ask for is not bad for them, we parents delight in giving it to them, right? Great fun, particularly for grandparents. Grandparents, isn't that wonderful? But if what they want is not what they need, if what they want would in fact be harmful to them, we owe it to them to say no to their wants and provide instead what they need. I was the child of a door-to-door delivery milkman who delivered all kinds of dairy products, including ice cream, and I loved ice cream. Just one problem. I was allergic to dairy products. All dairy products, that included ice cream. Oh, I begged for ice cream. I pleaded for ice cream. And my parents were so mean. Do you think they would give me ice cream? Just recently, Sherry and I have gone on a, on a diet, and she's on a particular regimen. Not a fun regimen. Let me tell you, when it comes to what we eat and supplements she takes, I wake up every morning distressed over the fact that I'm going to have to say no to her a number of times during the Now, she doesn't plead with me, but just that look in her eyes. Couldn't I? You really can't have four grapes? I really can't. And instead, take these four pills. I hate that. But that's what we need to do right now. Pastors and counselors are faced with this situation almost daily. People come to us with, with, for wisdom counsel, wishing to hear what? they wishing to hear us agree with them. They come with a, a position and they say, this is me, this is my situation. You agree with me, don't you? But all too often what they want is not what they need according to God's Word. And we must love them enough to say no. This is God's way. What pain, what dishonoring of God, what death in the camp could have been avoided if instead of giving those under his care what they wanted, Aaron had said something like this, really? Really? You want to write off Moses? You're going to write off God and his commandments and fashion new gods for yourselves? Hey, look up to the top of the mountain over there. The fire of God's glory is still blazing. Do you see it? Have you forgotten the thunder and the lightning and the way you trembled at the voice of God? Instead, he gave them what they wanted. Not because he loved them, don't kid yourself, but because he wanted to be liked by them. A third leadership failure observable in Exodus 32 is Aaron's failure to keep God's glory paramount. At best, we might conclude that Aaron attempted to at least keep Jehovah God involved 
in the antics of the Israelites. In verses 5 and 6, we read, When Aaron saw this, when he saw what the people were up to, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, which it was not. But there's nothing here to even hint that, that Aaron successfully upheld the glory and the honor of Israel's great God. The revelry that followed was anything but God-honoring. Aaron's failure on this account is a sobering reminder that whenever and wherever God's children are elevated to positions of leadership, their first and foremost duty is to, is to use that position as an opportunity to honor and glorify our great God. In the 1920s, at age 17, my mom left her little home, farm home, and a little village of, of Louisville, Ohio. She traveled to New Jersey, Orange, New Jersey, by train, where she was to serve as governess and nanny. She'd been there just a few short months when one night, alone in her room, she was listening to the radio, and she heard the gospel. In simple faith, she reached out and received the message she heard. The next day, she walked down the hill to the steps of the church where she had attended in those early months as she'd arrived there. And she asked for an appointment to see the pastor. Oh, the receptionist said, I think you could go in right now. And so she did. And she shared with the pastor what she had experienced alone in her room the night before. And she asked him, had he ever heard of that kind of experience? Oh, yes, he said. And then with a tear running down his cheek, he told her how once he had had that experience with Christ too. And he used to preach it. And she said, but why haven't I ever heard it? And he said, oh, the people didn't want to listen to that. And so it was that the gospel was no longer honored nor was God glorified in that church, nor might I add in many churches across our land. But let me share an illustration that comes closer to home for many of us. Some years ago when we were still in Deerfield, Sherry was serving as administrative assistant for a very wealthy family in Lake Forest. There were also others who worked in that large household and she, to some extent at least, oversaw their work. There was a housekeeper that worked there. And this particular housekeeper was constantly taking the name of the Lord in vain. You ever been in that setting where somebody just constantly takes the Lord's name in vain? It was, of course, for Sherry, deeply offensive. She'd come home and we'd talk about it and we'd pray about it, seek wisdom on how she should deal with it. And finally, Sherry decided to sit down with this housekeeper, and she did. And she explained to her that Jesus was her closest friend and her Savior, and that it hurt her deeply to hear his name used in such a manner. Now, thankfully, the housekeeper took Sherry's words to heart. But my point is this. Wherever we find ourselves in a position of leadership or authority, the desire to keep God's name and glory paramount should always be our highest motivation. Next, we observe in Exodus 32 a failure which is all too common among leaders of every age. 
The fourth failure we want to look at this morning. The failure to take the blame for our own failures. This one would be funny if it wasn't so sad. In verse 21, we find Moses confronting Aaron. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? And Aaron's answer, he says, don't be angry, my Lord. Or what he's really saying is, don't be angry with me. Go ahead and be angry, but be angry with somebody else, okay? He says, you know how prone these people are to evil. And then, by the way, he throws a little bit of a, of a curveball in there. He says to him, after all, you were gone a long time, Moses. Where were you when I needed you? And, and, then, and then he says, I threw it, I threw this thing into the fire, and voila! Which is a French word for impossible. <laughs> voila, out, out came this calf. That, my friend, is tantamount to blaming the fates. It's tantamount to saying, if there's a God in heaven who oversees things providentially, hey, it's in his hands. I had nothing to do with it. I recently read an article on leadership in which the author stated that a good leader is one who bears more blame than he asked those under him to bear. Unfortunately, Aaron was not among those leaders. Confronted by Moses for his failures as a leader, his first response was to throw his people under the bus. You know how prone those people are to evil. They said, they gave me the gold, they, they, they. And to be sure, the people were culpable in this matter. But, what, but, but I think that hardly excused Aaron for his failures as their leader. Moses was on target when he stated, you led them into great sin. In the parallel account of the golden calf found over in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, God speaks first of his anger against all those involved in this incident. But then he singles out Aaron as their leader. And the text says, the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. There's a fifth failure of leadership, which Aaron was guilty of on this occasion. The failure to maintain control over those entrusted to his care. In verse 25, we read, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. Now, those two phrases, running wild and out of control, both are expressions that come from the same verb, meaning to set loose. We might say to give permission Kyle and Delich in their commentaries say, to set free from all restraint. To Aaron's excuse, you know how prone to evil these people are, Moses responds in, chapter, or in verse 25, yes, but you turned them loose. You lifted their restraints. And by doing so, you lost control over them. Like a permissive parent who's lifted all restraints from his children and then complains, I just can't do anything with them. Or like the civil authorities of our day who turn their citizens free to do pretty much as they wish without consequences for their actions and then face lawlessness in the streets and wonder why. Aaron, wanting the people's approval, set them free to worship however they pleased and then complained that they bowed down before idols. 
Who knew? There's still one more example of Aaron's failure as a leader of God's children. And this example is not found in our text for today. But it is so notable that I think we simply have to take a moment to look at it. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 12. Here we read of Aaron's failure to remain humble. In verse 1 we read, Aaron began to talk against Moses. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us? Aaron's speaking now for himself and his sister Miriam. We're not told all the details leading up to this particular moment, this revolt of sorts. We are told that Aaron and Miriam were upset because Moses had married a Cushite woman, an Ethiopian woman. But in all likelihood, it also stemmed from Aaron's growing dissatisfaction with Moses' leadership. He was tired of answering to his baby brother. He began to think, I could do a better job leading these people than he's doing. You can almost read it in the text. I remember an occasion many years ago now when one of my staff members came to my office and announced, you do know that if we were anywhere else, I'd be your boss. It seems that this was the conclusion Aaron had arrived at after several years of following Moses. By the way, it's significant that in verse 3 of this same chapter, we read, now Moses was a very humble man. The contrast is not unnoticed. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. But Aaron, that was not Aaron's case. Even his many failures in leadership had not been able to humble him. Now, if you've been following me this morning, and you have been, you're good listeners, you should be asking yourselves, so what's the point, Marty? What's the value in ganging up on poor Aaron and pointing out the obvious, pointing out all his failures as a leader of God's people? My answer is twofold. First, Aaron's failures as leader of, a leader of God's people are the same failures that you and I are prone to in those areas of our lives where God has called us to lead. So that hopefully, by examining them, we can learn from his poor example how to avoid falling into these same mistakes. But I think there's a second and an even greater lesson to be learned from this study of Aaron's failed leadership. It's a lesson on the grace of God applied in the lives of those whom He calls to lead. Paralleling the biblical account of Aaron's many failures as a leader of God's people is an almost unbelievable picture of God's undeserved and irresistible favor, what we call grace. It is a grace that prevails in spite of all Aaron's foolishness, weakness, and rebelliousness. In Deuteronomy 9.20, we're told that although God was angry enough with Aaron for constructing the golden calf, angry enough with him to kill him, he didn't. He spared his life. 
In Numbers 12, we read that although God rebuked Aaron for severely revolting, uh, uh, he rebuked Aaron severely for revolting against Moses, he not only didn't harm him, he heard his prayer when he asked God to heal his sister Miriam. You remember that when, when Aaron and Miriam came against Moses, God struck Miriam with leprosy. Not Aaron. Who? Why? You know? But Aaron is left to plead on behalf of Miriam. Lord, don't take her. And God hears his prayer. So he not only spares him this disease, he also, he also hears his cry on behalf of his sister. In number 17, we're told of, of a revolt against Moses and Aaron by the leaders of the 12 tribes. They challenged Aaron's role as high priest on this occasion. And God said to Moses, you take a staff from each of the leaders of the 12 tribes and you place them in the tabernacle alongside the, the rod, the almond rod of Aaron, and let it there overnight and we'll see what happens. And here's what happened overnight. Overnight, one of those sticks sprouted leaves. Overnight, one of those sticks blossomed. Overnight, one of those sticks produced almonds, while the rest of the sticks remained sticks. And hence, God affirmed and confirmed this faulty leader by His grace and for His purposes. Aaron's rod was God's confirmation. Again and again, as you read through the text, I don't have time to look at all the particulars this morning, but God spared Aaron from the anger of his own people and his own anger and confirmed his leadership role over them. In old age, at 123 years of age, God took Aaron up the mountain. He transferred his high priestly garbs to those of his son to say, the high priestly lineage will come through you, Aaron, in spite of all your errors, all your mistakes. And he took him home. He took Aaron home. And the Bible says, and this shocked me, the people down below stopped what they were doing, and for 30 days they grieved Aaron's death, and they celebrated and honored his life. Really? The best of our politicians, the best of our leaders, the best of our pastors don't get that kind of honor. All this in spite of a most checkered career. All this in spite of many and serious failures as their leader. And this, I submit to you, is a picture of God's undeserved favor extended to a leader who, like many of us, stumbled across the finish line of God's plan for his life. I said, like many of us, stumbled across the finish line of God's plan for his life. Fifty years ago, as a young seminarian, I was challenged by one of my professors to prayerfully write down and place before the Lord my life goals. I began with a massive manuscript. Like most young men, I was going to change the world. I could hardly change my shoes. <laughs> and the longer I worked on it, the more God humbled me until I realized I had no right to even be thinking in these terms. And all I could get down to submit finally was this. I said, oh God, let me be found faithful 
faithful over the years as leader of my family and leader of whatever local congregations you should place me in as pastor. That was 50 years ago, well, 49 and a half. Today, as I reflect on my life and my ministry, I am all too well aware that among the successes of those years, there are also more than a few failures. And I am, of course, saddened by those failures, especially those that caused others pain, and some of them did. You know I wish I could go back. You know I wish I could get a do-over. But that's impossible. Here's what I want you to hear. Though my failures as a husband and a father and a pastor have been many, in every case, God's grace has prevailed. Has God called you? Has he placed you in a position of leadership? Almost certainly he has. He's not going to desert you. He'll guide you. He'll enable you. When you need, he'll forgive you. And when you fail, as we all do at times, he will graciously, graciously restore you. You may be here this morning and the idea of grace itself is new to you. This whole book tells a story of wonderful grace, of a God who sent his son into the world to be our savior. If you've never encountered him, you can do so. His grace is available to you. By faith, receive the good message of Jesus coming to be your savior. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them. Invite God to come into your life. Be your savior. Extend his grace to you, his saving grace. He'll hear your cry and he will answer. Spirit of God, we thank you that in the midst of life and in the midst of our failures, you do not fail us. You remain faithful. Oh, if it were not so, we'd want to give up today. How we bless you, how we honor you, how we lift up your name as the faithful God who has come to us in Jesus. Amen.